Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephanie Fay, and I'll be sharing insights into how human brain architecture and biology are influenced by our unconscious fears and social behaviors. I'll also give you science-based strategies on how to skyrocket the brain's learning potential by focusing on the power of mindset, relationship, and psychological safety. Thanks for listening. Hello, and thanks for joining me. This is episode seven. This episode will cover the concept of individuation. And what I mean by that is that the more we individuate, meaning that the more we tell personalized stories about people and make them less these homogenous groups or something we call essentialist thinking, where we see a giant group or category of people, and we don't recognize that there is anything individuated about those people. The more we do that, the more compassionate we become, and the less accepting we become of inequality. So we're going to take a look at how important this idea of individuating is, how not doing it is part of what actually leads to a fixed mindset, and then also how storytelling can be a powerful tool for this idea of individuation and also resonating on a brainwave level with other people. So the first aspect of this individuation piece comes from some of Dweck's earlier research, which was on her original term for a growth versus fixed mindset fixed being the entity mindset and growth being incremental. And what they found in some of their studies on young children was that when they used or the instructor used generic statements, that it tended to lead students to have a more fixed mindset about traits and skills and abilities. So for example, when they used use a statement about dolphins, they would say dolphins as a group, they pluralized it, made it into this homogenous statement. Dolphins have fat under their belly. And what they found, how students attributed the fat to the dolphins, was that it was something inherent or innate or even genetic and functional in terms of that. So the students would talk about the fat being under the belly of the dolphins, plural, because it helps dolphins float or it keeps them warm, as an example. However, when they changed just tiny wording in these statements, and they made the statements individualized or individuated, non-generic, such as, that dolphin has fat under her belly. The students changed how they attributed the fat, where it came from, the inferences they made about it. And it became more about, that dolphin ate too much. Or she was very hungry and ate so much that her belly has fat under it. So they started to make a difference almost between, and it's really the essence between this idea of entity or the fixed versus the incremental or growth mindset. The entity mindset is almost, you could see it as something people have inherently, whereas incremental or growth, or I prefer the word emergent actually, is a the idea that things that are in our lives, our skills, abilities, traits, features, are because of things we do. So it's a have versus do mindset in some ways. And they find that these generic versus non-generic, or you could say these individuated or not not individuated statements, can actually even do two things. The generic statements can actually lead people to have fixed mindsets and can affect their performance. So they will do this, for example, with games or math 
activities or exercises. And if they use generic statements such as, boys are really good at this game, and they make up a game, they find that the boys' performance can actually, even though they are part of the inherently good or the that generic statement, that the boys tend to perform worse on these tasks, as, as do the girls. But when they change the statement to be an individuated statement, that that boy is good at this game, the students then attribute it more to something he did, a strategy or some kind of thing that he's doing or practice, and they their performance actually improves um, when they are given these individuated statements. And something to think about uh, in terms of how all of us have been primed over the years is that 40% of the language that we get before the age of five or six are these over-categorized, generalized statements, these generic statements. So as children, a large percentage of the language we get is more pluralized in terms of bees or dogs, kids, boys, grown-ups, all of those things, rather than that boy or that grown-up or that dog or that bee. So we don't do a lot of individuating the, in terms of the messages that we're receiving as children, which partly makes sense because categorizing and making generalizations makes the world a little easier to navigate. If it, everything was individuated, we'd have a harder time possibly seeing certain relational patterns and making inferences. But the issue becomes that sometimes things become so generalized that we start to have this essentialist type of thinking, which is where we see things as categories and homogenous and invariant when, in fact, a group, especially when it comes to populations of people, have very distinct features and there are individuals that make up that group. But because we, partly also how our brains work in terms of being efficient and wanting to categorize things and the amount of generic statements we get growing up, our brain starts to make giant inferences and cause effect kind of analyses about whole groups of people. And as we can see, as soon as this becomes pluralized, we start to see that or believe, create these inferences in our brain that the traits that we are being presented with about these groups are inherent or essentialist, the essence of that group, rather than things that they have done or did, and rather than seeing each individual as being an accumulation of different behaviors. So we tend to put too much emphasis on these features that they couldn't even change, these invariant possibly genetic factors. And one thing that that type of essentialist thinking can do is it actually can make people more accepting of inequality, meaning that they will feel it's less or that it's more or less just or fair for there to be inequality among groups. For example, Robert Sapolsky talks about this in his book, Behave, that scientists had a study where they they gave a questionnaire to people about their acceptance of racial inequalities. And they gave them one of two primes. The first one really emphasized this essentialist thinking so that these groups are homogenous and invariant. And so they had a statement such as, scientists pinpoint the genetic underpinnings of race, even though we see that a lot of what we understand to be race isn't necessarily about genetics and more about culture and how things have been told over time. But in any case, that was the prime they were given. The other prime was non-essentialist or anti-essentialist. 
such as scientists, reveal that race has no genetic basis. And what they found was being primed toward the essentialist type of thinking made the group more accepting of racial inequality. And this makes sense because if someone has the narrative that something is totally unchangeable, it's a fixed trait in a person, then there's really no point. There, there, first of all, there's no point in trying to create change for those for those people, in quotations. And also, it feels less like a justice issue that certain groups of people have different circumstances than others. Because if we believe that it's something that's genetic or just inherent or innate about an entire group of people, then there isn't really a question about justice. It's just the way things are. So I think it's important to think about how much of this essentialist type of thinking we have been imprinted with in our lives and how much it kind of just can often be perpetuated by continuing to get, you know, news stories and media and even curriculum in classrooms where giant categories of people are talked about and there are not so many of these individuated stories. So they do find that individuation um, can have really powerful counter effects to this type of essentialist thinking, which we'll talk about in the next section. So we see that essentialist thinking can create a type of social apathy and acceptance of injustice and inequality, whereas we see that individuation can actually have a really powerful effect not only for other people's perception of groups, so, you know, um, having, let's say, people, when they're thinking about homeless people as a group, they will have a different perception and more compassion when there's a, an individuated story, a personalized story about the homeless person and their preferences and things like that that come up. But what's even more powerful, I think, is to think about how this individuation idea can actually protect people from the negative effects that they receive when they are kind of subject to or primed with stereotypes that might affect them negatively. So what I mean by that is there's a one researcher in particular from New York University, Joshua Aronson, who has done a fair amount of work on this idea of stereotype threat. And what they have seen, him and many other researchers have seen, that people can be primed to basically be affected by a certain stereotype that can negatively impact them or positively impact their performance on certain tasks. And these primes are unconscious. They're not being explicitly told about a stereotype, but they can prime someone, for example, let's say there's an Asian female student. They can prime her identity as an Asian person before a math test. And through the positive stereotype of Asians doing well in math, her performance might improve. But if they prime her identification as a female, so that she, they have, you know, a survey in the beginning asking her to fill out whether she's, you know, male or female, that this can prime the negative stereotype of females not doing well at math. And this can actually negatively impact this person's performance. And they've replicated this type of study across many, many different populations. And they find that there is a pretty significant effect of the stereotype threat 
that when people are primed for their identification with a certain group that is negatively stereotyped, that their performance lowers. And it can also improve when they have the positive stereotype. But what Joshua Aronson wanted to look at was how we might be able to help protect people against this, because they might not be able to have any choice or control of whether these stereotypes are being primed, because, for example, minorities going to university or college, there are fairly high dropout rates. And part of the reason is that many of them feel like they don't belong. And so with Joshua Aronson studies, he decided to try to see if somebody was actually primed to individuate themselves. So they were given different surveys to think about their preferences and unique personality traits and tastes and things like that, and tried to really get them to think about themselves as an individual. And what they found in that research is that when people are given a chance to individuate themselves, to think about something very unique about them, and this can actually be negative or positive traits about themselves. So it's not even just positive affirmations, but generic kind of neutral statements and even negative things but that are very unique to them. The more they think about how unique they are and how individual they are, that this actually protects them against these stereotype threats. So they're able to give them the prime of the the negative stereotype, but if it's if they are also given this this a chance to individuate, it counters the effect of the negative stereotype. And individuating also helps those people do better compared to someone who is negatively primed for that stereotype. So this idea of individuation is really powerful. And I think that it doesn't play a big role in many of the stories that we tell and also curriculum that we learn. And even just like I mentioned, what we get primed as from a very young age in terms of how many generic statements we get. So it can be a a powerful piece that we bring into a workplace or a classroom where if we can get people to think about their very unique traits preferences. um, And it doesn't even have to be positive ones. It can also be their negative qualities or traits, the things that they really attribute to them personally. The more we can do that, the more we might protect people from the effects of these, this essentialist thinking and these stereotype threats. And in line with this idea of individuating, there's a great TED Talk by a person named Christian Picciolini. And he uh, was someone that was part of a white supremacist hate group for many years, uh, from the age of 14 until, I believe, 22. And he's been out of that group. Um, He's, I think, 44 now. He's been out of that group for a long time and has done work now for over a decade in trying to help people remove themselves from these hate groups. And part of his process of doing this is really, if you think about it, it's this idea of individuating. He has people meet individuals, actual people from the groups they believe they hate. Because what he found in his experience was a few things. One was that many of the people that hate an entire group of people whether it's a race or an ideology or anything like that, have never actually really met. They've never had a really personal encounter with any of the people that belong to that group. And so that's something that he brings into the process and he finds it really, really powerful. So that's one part of that individuation. The other 
pattern he found being part of part of this experience was that there were three components that seemed to really draw people into these hate groups, these three things that seemed to, they felt were missing from their lives. That was community, identity, and purpose. So rather than it being this ideology-based kind of idea, he found that it was much more common that the, especially the young people who are very easily recruited into hate groups, lack the sense of belonging. They're, they're, they don't feel like they belong anywhere. They don't know what their identity is. And that I think ties into this idea of, of belonging. And they also don't have a sense of purpose. And so one way that they, these hate groups recruit young people is they get them to think about their heritage and things about them that make them a really valuable contributor to society. So again, the more we can bring this type of thinking into our classrooms and communities and organizations, having people think about their very unique purpose, what their unique contribution is, and how even their their experiences, their challenges, all of that has led to something very special and unique within them, that that can give them, and this is very much going back to episode four, where I talked about purpose, that can really give them that sense of contribution. And that ties into this idea of identity and purpose. And it also helps them belong to a value-based. So rather than a, a group being based on something to do with this essentialist thinking, these inherent, what we think inherent traits are, but rather that we can have groups that are based more on what they do and what they do for their future, what they do to contribute, that can then create more humanity-wide type of groupings, which are based on our values and our vision for the future. And that allows people to have a sense of belonging or into any of these groups because it has to do with things we do with the positive contributions we make. So that really helps, that can really help draw many people in because it won't be about something inherent or innate that they can't do anything about. So that's another powerful way we can use this idea of growth mindset, or as I keep saying, I prefer the idea of emergent mindset, that things are due to complex causes and they're malleable and evolving. But going back to this idea of, you know, the entity versus incremental, that the entity has more to do with things people have inherently or innately, whereas incremental or emergence or growth mindset is more about things people do. So I think that that can be a powerful way to look at this sense of belonging and sense of family and acceptance, that we can create this sense of community more based on what people are doing and the contribution that they're making. But another interesting piece from Christian Picciolini's work ties both into this idea of individuating, but also back into the social engagement theory, social engagement system, which is going back to the eye gaze and that eye to eye, face to heart connection that we have as mammals and, and humans. And one experience he talks about that had a really profound influence on him was during a time where they, you know, there was a incident between a group, his group and another group, and they were beating on somebody. And as this person was laying on the ground, his eyes were swollen, shut. But at one point, one of his eyes opened 
And that eye made contact with Christian's eyes. And he, they had a moment of really seeing into each other's eyes. And that moment, he said, was when he stopped being violent. It profoundly changed him. And it was, it was the moment that he decided he could no longer be violent. That's how powerful this social engagement system is, this eye-to-eye, face-to-face, face-to-heart connection is between us. And it created him his mindset to become more humanizing in that moment. So what I'm really trying to get at in this episode is how often we tend to be over-categorizing people and groups of people and that individuating and personalizing. And that includes also personal encounters, eye-to-eye, face-to-face connections with individuals, not through social media, not through any other means, but these personal interactions can be so life-changing and powerful. And lastly, this individuation piece, this individuation idea is also something that we see in the idea of storytelling. And many of you have maybe noticed that there is a fairly big increase in marketing, for example. A lot of them are using storytelling. For example, Coca-Cola commercials, you'll see that they have a really, they use a lot of storytelling. There's always, there's like a little romance, there's a story arc in there. And Part of it is because they're seeing from the results that storytelling is really powerful. It's a powerful way to persuade and convince people. It evokes emotions within us. And what they even find in brain research is that there's something called neural entrainment that happens when we tell stories, which is that the brain waves of the person listening to the story start to sync up with the person telling the story. And this really, if you think about it, a story always requires this personal journey. It's a, a hero journey or however you want to call it, but there's an indivi- there are individuals that come into a story. And so the more that we can bring in storytelling into our workplace, communities, organizations, mm-hmm. that helps with this individuation process. And they even see this in terms of when they have calls for donations. So you might have even seen There were shifts in how certain charities from, for example, for people without access to water or food in Africa, that they started to make the stories be more about a particular child or family, and they told that individual story. And they found that that increased the amount of donations that were happening rather than generalizing or making those groups very homogenous and and invariant. And so just one other you know, piece on that in terms of the storytelling is I, I do want to mention a story that was very powerful for me. You know, I was working for the government for a while and I found that I, I needed to have something that brought me a, a bigger sense of purpose. So I ended up working, doing um, service learning semesters for high school graduates that had behavioral issues. I, I mentioned that, I believe, in episode one. And there was one particular student, I'll call him Oscar. And Oscar was someone who had a, a really rough upbringing, um, a alcoholic, abusive absent father, except for the times that he would just show up and, you know, beat his mom and him. And he was going down a pretty dark path. But as we, when we got there, uh, we, you know, did some counseling sessions and a big part of what came up in our counseling sessions without me even realizing I wasn't doing it explicitly or consciously, but 
I started to notice glimpses of him talking about writing or poetry. And so we dug deeper into how much he wanted to express himself and show almost an artistic side to him. And what we found was that the more he was able to express his pain and all those feelings he had in in words and to get them down in, in a poem or an essay, he started to feel really empowered. And there was a really big shift in his behavior. As we got there, I mean, there was two components. One was that he was needed by the community. So that's that self-transcendent purpose. But he was also able to find a way to use his pain and his very unique experiences to turn that into what made him really special. And he went from being this kind of rough instigator of aggressive behavior in the group to being like this big solid oak tree that people started to lean on because he found that his the uniqueness of how much he went through actually made him into someone who wanted to be very protective. So instead of seeing this feeling he had of aggression as only being this negative trait, he actually ended up channeling it into this idea of being a protector and helping people stand up for themselves and have boundaries. And so he, you know, wrote to me many years later and just said that me helping him see the uniqueness of what he went through and how it could be turned into something that could actually contribute something good was really powerful. And uh, he wrote, you know, a few essays about that. So I wanted to share that partly as my a story that I want to tell too, that sometimes it's helpful for us to think about some of the students or people we see who do really bad things and to figure out what their story is. You know, there's even someone right now, and I can't say too many details because I don't want to give too much away about their identity, but they are someone who, it's a young person who got taken away from his family from a young age because there was drugs and stuff at home. And he's moved from foster family to foster family. And each time he has, he has a really hard time there because he has so much anger built up inside him and he, he takes it out. And he's now in a, a really dark place. And part of what he has been saying is that, number one, he just feels like he just can't do it alone. And that's one of his statements that I just, I can't do this by myself, he says. And He's in a hospital, he's getting treatment, but part of what he even started to think about were these different groups that have been calling to him, different hate groups, because they do exactly that. They, they try to fill that void of, of trying to give a sense of belonging and contribution. And so the more we can try to bring these ideas into our classrooms and workplace, we might be able to reach some of those people that are feeling very alienated and lost that nobody really cares if they exist or not. And that's really how this person I'm talking about now, how how he feels and how many of the students I counseled were feeling that there just was no purpose. There was nobody that actually cared whether they lived or died. And there are so many people going through that right now at this moment. So I hope that you can take some of the messages from today and also from the previous previous episodes I've given where just having those a sense of a connection with somebody and it might be just an eye gaze it might be smiling eyes for somebody that might do something for their day it might mean that for that one moment somebody noticed 
that they exist and weren't afraid of them in that moment. And that could be something that can change someone's day just by feeling that they're there is a reason for them to be here, or at the very least that their presence and their existence is noticed and that it's not being that people aren't repulsed or disgusted by that person. Because I guarantee you there are many people right now in this world that feel that they are repulsive and that they really don't need to be here. And that type of anger builds up to a point where they may want to hurt other people because they don't know what to do with what they're feeling. So you know, I know that's a very somber note, but I just wanted to to leave with that idea because I think that we tend to demonize a lot of people and many of the behaviors, and I've mentioned this in other episodes, but so many of these behaviors that we see as terrible and atrocious is coming from a, a very deep place of shame and pain. And the more we can try to realize how personalized these people's journeys are, that there's so much stuff that has happened to them and that there might be a chance that it's not something inherent in a certain group, whether we're talking about criminals as a group that we've demonized, that each person has a story. And the more we can help them bring that out and the more we can create this idea of safety for them and social engagement that place of social intimacy and trust and connection with people, we might be able to make a real change in, in the trajectory of their lives. And I know that that is, has been my experience, that people who were definitely written off by everybody else, when they got to be in the presence of someone who wasn't disgusted by them, who hadn't grouped them into a unfixable, unchangeable kind of person, that just that, that idea gave them hope. And it changed their trajectory. And I have written confirmation of how many lives can be changed by that, by the different essays that I have gotten over the years and the emails from people who are now doing extraordinary things, such as opening up their own clinics for substance abuse victims. Those are the kinds of changes that I have seen in people. So I hope that that can inspire you to bring some of the ideas from all these the previous episodes in, into your work and your organizations and communities. So a quick summary of today's episode, we looked at the difference between essentialist thinking and individuation. So essentialist is looking at groups as homogenous and invariant, unchangeable. There's often a big genetic component to that. And that can get people to, first of all, be more accepting of inequality. And it can also lead to fixed mindsets where we tend to think things are just inherent about people and therefore there's no point in trying to help. And also this type of, you know, essentialist or generic versus non-generic thinking, the generic type of thinking can even lead to fixed mindsets about people in that moment. And that can actually lower their performance on different tasks. Whereas individuation is something that can be a protective thing. The more we get people to know how individual they are and how unique their experiences have been, the more they can be protected against these stereotype threats that can really negatively impact their performance and their outcomes. Then we also looked at how even the, this individuation plus social engagement can actually have an effect on somebody, for example, who is part of a hate group, giving giving 
them a chance to have a personal encounter with somebody. A very personalized story about somebody can possibly change their mind about that group. And that makes sense because our brains are always trying to create these statistics and these probabilities and inferences about things. So if someone comes in and we have a personal encounter with them and they're not doing or, you know, they don't invoke the the feeling that we have from that hate we have about the group in general, that creates neural activity in our brain that goes against the narrative that has been kind of imprinted and put in place. And so it creates, uh, you know, a contradiction in our mind. It can be very hard for us to hold those two things. So it can actually create uh, neural changes in, in a person to get a, to have a personal encounter and even at the very least, a personalized story about somebody that they have normally looked at as just being this giant homogenous group. And lastly, we looked at storytelling and that telling stories can actually create a synchronization of, of brainwaves in the person hearing the story and the person telling it. And a big part of the storytelling is that it requires a personalization. It requires us to talk about some type of individual um, or group, you know, individuals within that story. So these are all things that we can think about bringing into our organization or classroom to help people bring out some of their, their unique experiences and backgrounds in really positive ways. So I hope, I hope you enjoyed that episode. And as always, uh, send me any questions you have to info at stephaniefayfrank.com. Thanks so much for joining me. If you love the brain as much as I do, and you want to get some step-by-step strategies on how to teach growth mindset from a neuroscience perspective, as well as handouts, reflection questions, and even pre-packaged presentations to show to staff or students, then check out my mindset starter kit. It's at stephaniefayfrank.com slash training. And on that page, you'll also see my upcoming events, as well as my Institute for Mindset Resilience and Innovation training, the IMRI, which is starting in May. So if that sounds interesting to you, I hope you check it out. Again, it's at stephaniefayfrank.com slash training.